Thank you for joining us for the Conform to Christ podcast, where we seek to engage the mind, affect the heart, and call people to follow Christ. My name is George Mace, and I'm here with Jay Jones. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? It's going well. Awesome. Rainy, uh, rainy Thursday morning for us. Yep, it is. We're uh, what are we on? Number three, <clears throat> eschatology. Number three. Uh, well, I mean, it's oh, technically number four. Four. Or four. Yeah. yeah. Um, third, third position. So uh, we've looked at uh, premillennial, uh, dispensational premillennialism. We looked at amillennialism, and today Europe. We're yeah. talking about historic premillennialism. So we'll uh, historic premill, and then next week we'll have. Corey coming out? As far as I know, I'll, okay. I'll uh, next triple check with him, but yeah, I'm pretty sure he's coming out next week, and we'll talk about that post mill. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, before before we get any further, Jay, I, I ran across a video, and I, I really wanted to show it to you when I saw it, because I saw it on Monday. <laughs> but I was like, this, this has got to be safe for the podcast. This... Joy shares joy, right? And I was I was laughing out loud in my office uh, watching this. <laughs> all by yourself? Yeah, all by myself. So I, I thought that I would show this. This is a TikTok video, Jay. I don't I don't show these very often. The TikTok video, mm. but I, I hope that you'll enjoy this. This is a newscast. Uh, they're doing a uh, they're doing a story, and uh, I guess the title of the of the news story is "He picked the wrong house." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I I'm not sure where I'm not sure where this is. Um, it, it it's not anywhere around Oklahoma that I'm aware of. But uh, well, let's let's just watch it, Jay. Let's just enjoy it. All right, all right. Got the the volume turned up. Oh yeah. All right. Press the record button on your remote because you're gonna want to save. <laughs> he said to Police record say it. intruder broke into a Rochester woman's home late last night. Now, the woman lives alone, admits she was scared. But as Andrew Bannis explains, the intruder quickly learned he was no match for the 82-year-old inside. Oh, wow. He shares the story of what she experienced Thursday night. A man knocked on the door to her home. He was outside saying, please call an ambulance because I'm sick, I'm sick. Murphy said she called police but didn't let the man inside. Suddenly, I hear a loud noise and I'm saying to myself, what the heck is that? <laughs> the young man is in my home. Oh. Broke the door. She tried not to panic. After all, she spends most of her days doing this. <laughs> Oh. An award-winning weightlifter who <laughs> just won a competition earlier this year. I'm alone <laughs> and I'm old, but guess what? I'm tough. She, said she grabbed a nearby table. I took that table <laughs> and I went to working on him. And guess what? The table broke. The man fell to the floor. When he's down, I'm jumping on him. <laughs> <laughs> when officers arrived minutes later, it wasn't Murphy uh, who needed medical attention. He's laying down already because I had really good <laughs> number on that man. The suspect, who police say was intoxicated, was taken to oh, the hospital. Man. Murphy is not pressing charges. Today, she's cheered on by her friends at the gym. Wow. They call that Murphy's Law, George. <laughs> <laughs> she laid it down. She did, yeah, she did. I thought that was, uh, I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty good. <laughs> That's that funny, funny, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She took that. It's a wrong and house. Just started just started going to town on he him. Saw, he thought he saw a feeble old lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Uh, uh, well, I um, I showed this to you. I showed this to you this week. This has been making the rounds. This is uh, there's always got to be something, right? There's always got to be some controversy out there in the reformed world. <laughs> always. Uh, and uh, this is uh, this is quite the uh, this is quite <laughs> this is st- this guy this guy uh, he he uh, stepped right into it oh uh, today. Or well, w- when was this? This was. Um, Sunday. He posted this on Sunday. Okay. Here's a tweet from Del Partridge. <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> I saw that. It's tough for me to respect a man who loves to play video games. It's very mm. adolescent, and it seems those who do are the same men who can't find time to catechize their kids and lead family worship. And then he uh, he retweeted a uh, another... Another tweet, man, I think Partridge is right. As a former video game player, it's time to retire the video games. Mm. It's time to retire those video games, Jay. It's very mm. adolescent. Yeah. And uh, you're just not going to find time to catechize your, you just can't your do kids it. or have family worship. You can't do it. What do you think about that, Jay? Uh, I think it's like, it's like uh, I don't even know. We need to come up with a word for this because it's a, it's a thing that a lot of people do on like in the reformed world, they'll come up with some like thing that is definitely not applicable to everybody, Uh and they'll make it like a general or like a a rule that does apply to everybody. Right. Um, And usually it's something that they themselves have, like they they don't have a problem with it. Mm -hmm. And so they'll point out an issue that they'll they'll even attach to it even a sin component. Mm -hmm. Right. That has nothing to do with sin, and it has nothing to do with anything. It's just like a pet peeve. Yeah, but they'll they'll declare it as something. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I sometimes I think that people do it just to boost their followers. Yeah, on Twitter. You know what I mean? Could be because you're going to find people that disagree, and then you're going to find people that don't like it that makes them angry. Mm-hmm. But even the people that makes angry might follow you right. anyway, just so they can see what else you put out. Mm-hmm. So it's a platform building tool, yeah. I think. Well, what do you think about playing video games? I don't Jay? think there's anything wrong with playing video games. Right. I know that you don't. I play video games <laughs> pretty much every night after Angie goes to bed, usually with Drake. Yeah. So we'll put we'll be online and we'll play. And we'll probably do it while he goes to college. <clears throat> yeah. I could see us meeting up. We'll talk, have conversations, you know. Play a little Call of Duty. No, I don't see a problem with it at all. <clears throat> I mean, you have to be... I mean, it's like everything else in your life, right? If things aren't sinful in and of themselves, mm-hmm. they can all become sinful if not done in moderation. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think video games can be addictive. They can be escapists, escapist even. They can help you to escape from reality. And probably that's kind of the things that he's addressing. Yeah. But so can... Anything else? So can golf, which let's well, be let's uh, be honest. In the reform world, the the guys that I would put in the elite class of the reformed, golfing is in their culture. Like mm-hmm. it's a thing. Right. They golf with each other a lot. Did so you know he, that? I did not know that. Well, now you do know. know you know, know it now, George. Yeah, it's because you're not elite. I'm not a, I'm, I guess not. You're not in the elite. No. no you're just a scrub video game player. <laughs> Yeah, I would take offense at that if it wasn't so true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he got uh, 
obviously you got some pushback, but there's some funny ones. Yeah. There's some funny ones on here. Uh, this is from Abby Johnson. She uh, she she tweeted, "What about guys who are constantly posting on social media?" <clears throat> That's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good burn. Yeah, uh, but he responds, and I think this is where he gives up the game. He says, "Social media is ministry for me and for you." Um, Abby Johnson. She's uh-huh. the uh, the uh, she's the the Catholic um, yeah, pro life. Yeah. Lady. Yeah. Um, video games are recreation and entertainment. Unfair comparison. <laughs> so, Jay, social media is ministry. It can be. But video games are recreation and entertainment. Yeah. And I say he gives up the game because now he's he's essentially saying, well, all recreation and entertainment right. are, yeah. are out. Which is why I brought up golf. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just a gentleman. It's gentlemanly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, what 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 recreation and entertainment is acceptable for this guy? He beca- <clears throat> and now he's become the gatekeeper for what entertainment and recreation you can, right. is acceptable in video games. Well, I think it's is, polo. Video games are are not acceptable. I think right. golf. I think golf is a waste of time. I think we should all play polo like yeah. the old days. Oh yeah. Be real gentlemen. Mm. <laughs> Why not just go back to pistol duels? That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, right. so this guy, this this next guy, he has no chill. Like he's he's going after him. Uh, he he posted this. Uh, Del Partridge. I'm gonna throw it up there. Fourteen tweets. <laughs> that guy tweet. There's no way. He tweet. He has that many tweets. I guess. Wow, That's, it's ministry, though, Jay. Yeah, it's ministry. It's uh, the irony of the irony of him talking about how video games are a waste of time when he's on, when he's on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> when he's on Twitter this much, uh, this guy continues. He continues with this. He he actually goes back to January of last year. With this guy <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> At the, bottom, at the bottom, Del Partridge tweeted, my wife and I just finished Bones, and before that, everybody loves Raymond, but we need a good show, uh, drama or comedy to watch. Ideas, something PG-13 or cleaner, and this guy, oh, this, wow. guy goes, this guy goes and finds how many episodes are on the TV series Bones and how many TV, how many episodes of Everybody episodes, Loves Raymond, bro. and there's, there's, uh, there's 450 episodes that, that him and his mm-hmm. wife uh, watched. Those are okay, yeah. but... Video games. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You better not, Jay. It must. Uh, it must. And what's funny? What's funny? I was talking to. Uh, I was talking to one of our does church it, members. Does it mean this. he doesn't disciple his children? Is that <laughs> what it means? I guess. I guess. <laughs> um, I was talking to one of my uh, one of our our church members about this, and he who uh, was commenting on the fact that everybody everybody loves Raymond is about this this father that's basically <laughs> castrated by his wife <laughs> <laughs> and father in law. <laughs> Like that's okay. That's okay to watch uh, 210 episodes of the show about this father yeah. who's like this this dolt <laughs> who gets walked on by his wife. Um, but video games, better watch out, James. Yeah. Uh, but finally, I found this, and I thought that you would enjoy this. This uh, a lot of people are making memes to make fun of this, uh, and I thought this one Jay will get a kick out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's very adolescent. <laughs> hey, here's one thing I would tell tell Dale Partridge. And this is no offense to you or any other man listening. This is just a, a comeback for a smack. Yeah. It's tough for me to respect a man who didn't deploy. Oh, yeah. There was a war going on for 20 years. 
Seems like all the tough men signed up. Yeah. Dale. Gonna hurt my feelings, Shane. I'm not I'm just I'm just being <laughs> I'm just see I'm just I'm just being uh, I'm just being ornery. Well yeah, I mean ornery. You, you I mean the, the, this I mean this I, meme, I'm not this I meme. don't really believe that, George. Yeah, this meme is just funny. I'm just uh, saying you can Yeah, you, yeah, you can you can feel well the point is that George this, it's hard for me to respect a man that cheers for the Cubs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, we don't want to do this stupid stuff. Well yeah, I mean if it's not um if it's not a sin. Really raining, raining hard on us, Jay. If it's not a sin, um, don't yeah. don't be blasting people well, like this. Don't maybe I mean, if you don't respect other men for things like putting their coffee in a Keurig, maybe that reveals some type of sinfulness in yeah. your heart. Yeah, that'd be like me walking through the coffee, like out here in the lobby, <clears throat> and then I stand there and I watch which one of our church members puts creamer in their coffee. Uh-huh. And I go, it's hard for me to respect a man that put creamer in his coffee. <laughs> and then I just walk up and start preaching. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. What are we doing here? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, well, it's that always was, something, uh, though, George. Well, you got to build that the, platform. That's the, that was the big controversy. I mean, if that's the worst that's going on on Twitter right now, I guess it's <laughs> we should be counting our blessings. <laughs> <laughs> man. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the uh, the main topic. I had a little bit of fun, but uh, let's get serious, Jay. Get serious. It's all right. I got to get serious. Time to get okay. serious. All, all right. right. Well, we're, uh, we are continuing our series on um, eschatology, and what we uh, we thought we would do is is walk through the various positions um, that, uh, that, that Orthodox Christians have um, regarding their uh, their end times beliefs. So we've, we talked to Tim Gresham two weeks ago about... Uh, Dispensational premillennialism. Last week you interviewed me on all millennialism, and this mm-hmm. week I'm going to interview you on historic premillennialism. Right? Uh, maybe we should put a subtitle like uh, "Conformed to Christ Podcast: The Friendly Reformed Group." The Friendly Reformer, uh, where we don't anathematize each other over our end times positions. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are. There's some I just can't. I I can't resist. <laughs> taking a dig at. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about historic premillennialism, mm-hmm. shall we? Okay. All right. Well, um, I, I've uh, I've heard that people are enjoying hearing about kind of the background uh, to how we arrived at our our eschatology. So okay. I thought I'd, I'd start with that. Like, what's your story? About how you arrived at historic premillennialism, because I know that you grew up in a uh, your dad's denomination. You you grew up um, hearing chaplains, and I don't know what the eschatology of your dad's denomination was, but what what uh, what what's kind of your journey? Well, I think like pretty much everybody from our generation, we grew up being uh, dispensational premillennials without even knowing it. This is a do- it's a dominant position, <clears throat> right? It it probably is if you pulled evangelical <laughs> Christians, dispensationalism is still the dominant one. I would be my guess, at, at least in America. In the Reformed world, it seems that uh, probably all mill in post mill, post mill among youngers, younger people, I think, mm-hmm. um, and then historic pre mill is in there too. But so I, that's, how, that's how I grew up. So when I went to seminary, <laughs> that's what I was. Um, I remember reading, there was a series of three books, I can't find them because they weren't very popular, but I remember reading those in high school instead of actually paying attention to my teacher. <laughs> like sitting in class reading them, I thought they were the coolest thing ever. They were dispensational, pre-millennial. You know? or, or they're, they're one fiction. of them was even of like the end in the millennium. 
like it's from the perspective of Michael the Archangel. Do you know these? And then it sounds really familiar. Yeah. I, I may have read those also. Yes, I, and then I don't uh, remember what they're called though. Yeah. Um. So then, I, then I went to seminary and I started reading other material. And the first, I think the, all, the first alternative I was exposed to was amillennialism, and so I investigated that a little bit, and I found that there was definitely some merit there. Um, it was uh, appealing, uh, but then I discovered uh, postmillennialism, and uh, through the Blessed Hope, Ian Murray's The Blessed mm-hmm. Hope, mm-hmm. and I really like that version of postmillennialism because it's kind of uh, it's very optimistic that the gospel mm-hmm. will conquer the nations. <clears throat> not not so much maybe in the sense that every government would become Christian, but that the gospel would conquer the nations and bring about um, a more positive world. And even I saw there that the uh, many of the uh, Puritans believed that if they evangelized the Jews and the Jews returned, the end would come. Anyway, so that was very appealing to me. So for the duration of, of seminary, I was uh, post-mill. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, uh, so you're yeah. post mill longer than I was. I was post mill before it was cool. <clears throat> yeah, I'll say that there was no dat post mill when I was post mill. Um, and just through studying and kind of, uh, I, I just never was really settled. What really always kind of bothered me was the binding of Satan. That was probably the biggest obstacle to my post mill and all mill. Uh, I just didn't see a satisfactory. I understand the explanations. I just don't see them as super convincing. Um, and there there are several, there are many prophecies throughout the Bible that kind of to hold into that have to be a little <clears throat> bit allegorized in a way, or see them really as being fulfilled in new creation. But when you read them, and I didn't make a list of these Old Testament prophecies, but they seem to have more of a physical fulfillment than in a new creation or in a spiritual reign. So... And I can't remember when I first got introduced to uh, some historic pre-mail stuff. I'm trying to think back, but it, this has been now probably eight years or so, right around the time we came here, we moved here. And don't and I don't know my first. I, oh, I do know. I do know what got me. What really kind of got me back to it was I listened to Shriner uh, preach a sermon on Revelation 20, mm. and he was on mill. And then in the beginning of the sermon, he said, I switched this week. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't know. He, I, I was mean, like, what, what are you talking about? these guys, they switch back and forth. No, all the time. it's for real. i got to find funny. it. It's, it's, it's his sermon introduction to his congregation. <laughs> He's like, I just preached all to my seminary class, and yeah. I'm studying this passage to preach to you, and now I switch back. So he's like, so who, who are you going to listen to me? I don't know what position I am. And I was like, what? What? Yeah. And then, so I listened to his arguments there, and <laughs> as to why he, uh, which I have, I have, I have, uh, there's six of them listed here that I uh, snagged from him, which are pretty convincing, I think, as to why uh, 19 and 20 flow into each other. Um, and th- so that that pulled me back into the uh, the historic pre mill mm-hmm. camp. I didn't really understand that much of it yet, but then I started reading some of George Eldon Ladd's stuff, and <clears throat> there's uh, there's not there's not a ton out there uh, that's written by mm-hmm. historic pre-mail guys that don't write a lot of books, but mm. maybe because it's not that complicated or, or it's similar in many ways to other systems that there's just not a lot there. But anyway, there, that's where I arrived at historic premillennialism, um, and that's where I'm at. 
Okay. So they even let me in TMS. Can you believe it? I know. Yeah. Not holding to their eschatology. <laughs> uh, they don't do that for the master's level guys. Right. That's a no go. Yeah. You right. have to subscribe uh-huh. to that thing, but yeah, yeah. not on the doctoral. I even yeah. have all mills in my class. Well, it'd be hard to uh, it'd be hard to say to the students you can't come in if you're all mill, and then you have like Joel Beaky. <laughs> I know. And, and preach. <laughs> well, it's the majority of them. You know, <clears throat> majority of the speakers that came in, right. they were not. Yeah. Dispensationalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So majority of the teachers, I mean, they're they're like recurrent teachers every year at the doctoral level there. Mm-hmm. Interesting yeah. stuff. Okay. All right. So. Well, um, a lot of these questions that I, I was I was thinking about um, are going to have to deal with distinguishing Dispy pre-mill from historic pre-mill because there's, there's okay. going to be some overlap, but there's also going to be some significant differences. And then I just have some questions that I'm interested in, in hearing your answer. I mean, they're just, uh, they're just honest questions that I've, I've pondered myself and would like All to right. hear your, hear yeah, your yeah. answers to them. Um, but I, I think we should start with what is historic premillennialism? Okay, what so is it? Here's a definition. Um, I might could show this chart as I read this okay. and then, uh, then I'll, let me pull this up, see if I can get it open. Okay, so this chart's pretty simple, all right? This is classic premillennialism, also known as historic premillennialism. So historic premill, as the name implies, is historical, and I'll go through, uh, I have three reasons why I think this is the correct position, and one of those being the early church believed this, the earliest church, uh, like the disciples of John believe this. Uh, so historic premillennialists, that's the name. It's not dispensational premillennialism, which really emerged uh, pretty recently in history, like real recent, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things. Um, <clears throat> historic premillennialists place uh, the return of Christ just before the millennium and just after the great apostasy. So you'll see that period there. So there's the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we're in this period, which many people call the Church Age. And then sometime during this this period, there's going to be a tribulation. There'll be a man of lawlessness that appears, or the beast from Revelation, and um, we aren't raptured out of here. So this is the difference. There's no secret rapture. Mm-hmm. We aren't taken out. Um, <clears throat> We talked a little bit last time why we didn't think that in the all-mail one, so you can right. go back and listen to that, or we can re-talk about that later as we go through. But So we're here during that time, um, and as this man sets himself up as, as God and is persecuting the Church, Christ comes back suddenly. And so at, at Christ's second coming, the dead in Christ rise, those who are alive are also raised, and our bodies are transformed. We receive glorified bodies. Christ returns immediately, so we're caught up in the air. This is not secret. It's like a huge trumpet blast, an archangel shout. Christ returns. Everyone knows it. He comes and destroys all of his enemies, and it's not written there, but I believe in the mass conversion of ethnic Israel at that time. Okay, those that are still alive, they will weep, and I have. Uh, we can go through those verses in a second. They'll see him and they'll weep. Uh, there'll be real repentance. He'll grant them. Um, he'll grant them. Um, it, it, in a way, you can see it almost as a Saul conversion, but for mass of Israel, uh, ethnic Israel. Um, 
Then Satan is bound. Well, the the beast and the false prophet are destroyed, thrown into hell. Satan is bound, so the trifecta, the uh, the unholy trinity, is judged. Satan's cast into a bottomless pit, chained to where he can no longer deceive the nations. Then the millennial reign of Christ begins. Christ reigns on the earth for some would say 1,000 years. I'm not convinced it's only 1,000 years. I, I could see it being even a lot longer than 1,000 years. Okay. <clears throat> At the end of that time, which could be 1,000 years, could be a lot longer, um, Satan is unbound. He's released. He deceives the nations, Gog and Magog army, assemble to try to uh, fight against Christ and destroy him. And he easily destroys them all, Cast them into eternal hell, and eternity begins. Did you make this chart, Jay? I did not. Where did you find this? I just found it online. Really? Yeah. It's really bothering me that millennium is spelled differently twice. I didn't make it. <laughs> it is. Got to spell check those, yeah. uh, those charts. Yeah, I know. Got to spell check them. So right. there it is. Um, so there are some features and distinctions. So... <clears throat> so so let let's talk about where we're we're similar, right. and then let's talk about distinctions. How is that is okay? That okay with you? Because there there seems to be some some areas in which we would uh-huh. be in agreement. Probably, we probably, probably are, a lot. I, I think we're probably in more agreement than we're in disagreement. Uh-huh. Um, so where where would you see us being in agreement? Probably in everything except for the millennium. Okay. Okay. So if you okay. want to go back and listen to George's whole talk on all millennialism, I would say th- I would say we though I would may take more of a futurist approach. You have a kind of a eclectic mm-hmm. approach. You said of Revelation, mine would be probably more f- futurist approach. And then of course we differ. We're going to differ on uh, uh, Revelation nineteen and twenty, mm-hmm. where you will see a break after nineteen. Um, we'd still see it the second coming though. Right, nineteen still we we'd both agree this is the second coming. Uh huh. Right. Right. Um, and so it's going to be for me and you. The differences are going to be the binding of Satan and um, the millennium. Okay. What uh, What about? Um, you're both under- covenantal, right? Okay. So we're we have both we both subscribe to covenant theology. So the way that we would lay out the the, the Bible is pretty mm-hmm. pretty similar, right? right. Um, what uh, What about the tribulation? Where What? Um, how would you How would you understand? This idea of tribulation, mm. because well, you know dis, di, dispensationalists, they would say tribulation is seven. It's seven years. Mm-hmm. What what would you? How would how would you see that? Like, what's your understanding of? Could be could be seven years, uh, as far as great tribulation goes, and the unfold, unfolding of uh, the end of the end of all things, as the uh, as the, as the man of lawlessness is revealed. Um. But I believe we're the church is always in tribulation. Like, I don't see this is a distinction of of a historic premillennialism. Even you see it in the early church. The idea of suffering is um, maybe a key component of our Christianity, right? So we don't see any reason that that God would reveal us now or remove us from the world during the tribulation period, whereas a the dispensationalist would tie that to God's wrath. He'll never make us endure his wrath, mm-hmm. right? But 
in a similar way, I think, to the Israelites in the Exodus who were present when the wrath was poured out upon the Egyptians, they were preserved and they were not under the wrath of God. They mm-hmm. were protected from God's wrath, but they actually lived in it as a testimony, I think, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians of the one true God. Mm-hmm. I see in, in similar fashion that when this tribulation or great tribulation takes place, that the church is bearing witness to that. We aren't experiencing the plagues and curses of God upon the earth, the wrath that he's pouring out upon the world, but bearing witness in them, and he's preserving us and protecting us through those. Now, that doesn't mean we don't suffer persecution, and I think it's almost an insult to Christians around the world who have known nothing but great tribulation, right? If you... uh, if you live in a part of the world where after you get baptized, you might get beheaded, that seems pretty revelation-like, right? Yeah. Where you're going to be martyred. Um, <clears throat> so I don't, I don't think that uh, we should look f- to, be, uh, to, be, to be raptured. I don't think the rapture fits with uh, the secret rapture anyway, where we could escape the tribulation. I don't see that as part of God's plan. I see it as, I see that we are to learn obedience through suffering. How could we not if Christ learned obedience through suffering? You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get to escape where Christ had to persevere in suffering. Um, I don't. I don't think that's what's going to take place. Okay. So that'd be one distinction. Okay. Um, so you would see the rapture, I guess, the same way that I would. Uh huh. Um, Christ comes. We're caught up. That's right. To meet him in the air, but then we come back down mm-hmm. to earth. Yep, yep. So at that time <clears throat> is where we would say that uh, Satan is bound okay. and thrown into the bottom, bottomless pit, and the millennial reign of Christ begins, whereas, as we talked about before, you, the millennial reign begins at the resurrection. Is that for you? Uh, Yeah, or probably. Pentecost? Yeah, yeah, I mean... It's, Somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah. Another one that we hold in, in common, and we might not describe it exactly the same, but is different where historic premill differs from dispensational premillennial. Premill is I'm just going to premill yeah. is Israel and the Church. All right, the um, there is too much of a distinction between Israel and the Church uh, for me when I read the Bible in um, classical dispensationalism. Okay. So. The church is the fulfillment of Israel okay. in historic premill, okay? Not replacement. Mm-hmm. This, this is key, especially in the way that I, I understand it. The church is the fulfillment of Israel, so there's typology all throughout the Bible, and Israel is the people—they're the people of God. Well, when you come to the New Testament, um, God's plan for his people, which he actually promised not to Moses, right? He promised to Abraham, was that— all nations of the bl- of of the world will be blessed through him, that his descendants and 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 uh, Paul applies this right to Christ as the seed promised to Abraham, that those that are in Christ are the fulfillment of this promise. So you have an expansion. I think it's more of an expansion than a replacement. Mm. However, now, however, <clears throat> there still is, I believe, a uh, a distinction that Paul makes between what he will call um, a true Jew, or he'll say um, a Jew is is not one outwardly, but is one inwardly, 
right? He'll say, where does he say that? Romans, Romans uh, 2, 2.28. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so he, Paul himself makes that distinction. Mm-hmm. It's not, a true Jew is not ethnically one who is descended from these people. And yet, the same author will make distinctions in Romans chapter 9 through 11. Um, he is, he says he wished he could be cut off himself for the sake of his people. And he's speaking of ethnic Jews. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way out of it. Right. And then he makes the promises um, that they have a temporary hardening has come upon them so that we, the Gentiles, could be engrafted into Christ. That's the imagery. We're engrafted into Christ, so we do belong to the people of God. Mm-hmm. We're not like second-class people. But then he gives, you know, he gives the warning, right. and, and he says, you can be, you would, you'd be cut off too if you, if you disbelieve. Mm-hmm. And then he makes the promise that one day they will be engrafted in again, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now, I believe the timing of that happens when Christ returns, but all throughout this church age, um, ethnic Israel, et- ethnic Jews are being saved. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And I, I just can't get to the distinction because of, of uh, sections like Ephesians 2. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 2 just which we have talked about before, but it's worth doing it again, I think. Um, If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, there's citizenship language that is used of of Israel, and then he uses it for Gentiles. He applies it to Gentiles. So he's talking about... um, So he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made with the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So there's the commonwealth. The commonwealth of Israel is like nation language. Mm -hmm. And you were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, and that's he's drawing uh, attention to the dividing wall where Gentiles could not pass in the temple or they would be killed, Right, which <clears throat> communicates very clearly you're not a Jew, right? <clears throat> So he breaks that down by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, and here's the word, but you are fellow citizens of what? (laughs) Right. What did he already mention? The Commonwealth of Israel. Mm-hmm. So we can't try to be so rigid in our like divisions mm-hmm. between a Jew and Israelite to where we could not affirm what he says here. Right. Where he says we are in we are made part of the Commonwealth of Israel. Now, I still believe, I think as he does, <clears throat> that God still has a plan for ethnic Israel. And and I believe that happens because God, God's, um, and he, well, we can just go there in Romans. We can go to Romans and look at it. Um, the gifts and call, uh, gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, right? That's what He says, and that's being applied to His question as to why aren't the Jews saved? Mm-hmm. 
Well, he says God will be true to his promises to them, and one day they will be. Uh, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I can't. I don't think he can get any stronger than that. Right. Like he could have just said, well, they can come into you, and and that's that's it. But he doesn't. He kind of makes more of a statement as this. Uh, oh, where where does he say the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable? That's uh, verse twenty nine. Verse twenty nine. Um, Let you be wise in your own sight, and I want you to be an aware mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. It is written, deliverer will come from Zion, and I have. I have some verses here also that can link. Um, and will banish the ungodliness from Jacob. So I think this happens when Christ returns and he removes the blindness from their eyes, their hardness of their heart, and uh, he takes away their sin. And he goes on, he says, regards the gospel of your enemies, go down to 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as at one time you were disobedient to God, you have now received mercy. And this is the whole point of Romans. So they too have now been disobedient in order that mercy may be shown to them. Mercy may be shown to you. Wait, so the, these glasses. <laughs> so they have so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So this is in fitting with the whole purpose of the book of Romans, which he does in chapters 1 through 3. He'll show how the Gentiles... They're consigned to disobedience. They're sinners. Then he'll show how the Israelites, those who have been blessed <clears throat> with the Torah and the prophets, they too are disobedient. He's consigning all humans to disobedience so that he can show that all humans, all people, are saved the same way through Jesus Christ. For God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Jew and Gentile both are part of the people of God only by faith alone in Christ alone, and it's only through the mercy of God. But during this time in the church age, a hardening has come upon uh, the ethnic ethnic Jews. They aren't converting in mass. The majority of them have are are complete apostates, actually hostile to the God of the Bible. Many of them are atheists today. Um, but there's coming a time when. Because not because of them, and that's just how we were saved. We weren't saved because of anything in us. Only strictly because of God's promises and because of mercy and grace uh, that He will save save them. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference there. I don't believe there is this big distinction. Mm -hmm. However, I do believe uh, as Christ returns, He will save. Uh, ethnic Jews, and they will be distinct in the millennium. I actually believe in distinction of ethnicities into the new creation, because okay. I don't think distinction of ethnicities is a bad thing at all. Right. I think it's part of the goodness of God. Um, I mean, I like living in a town where there are so many different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great. Yeah. Different cultures, different music, different food. Um, so I think God's plan for Israel continue into the millennium, it, exactly what will it look like for ethnic Jews as far as their um, the government? I'm not sure, but I still believe in a future plan Okay, for them. Okay. Um, going into the millennium, um, however long that might be, um, we already know the distinctions between you and me. Mm -hmm. Are are there any major distinctions between uh, historic premill and dispensational premill in in the actual millennium 
Is there anything that would set set those two positions apart? Um. Well, I have got, I have one that I'm not sure is a distinction between the two, or if it's a um, even a, a distinction that can be made among those that hold historic premillennials. Like so. Well, I don't want to go there yet, but it has to do with who's alive in the millennium. Okay. Yeah, I ha- yeah, I wanted to, right. to ask that question. I have that as like one of my um, problem or mm-hmm. things to work through. Okay. Issues, but um, more distinctions. I think uh, like the nature of the 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 millennium. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've run across with dispensationalism that you'd be like, mm, I, don't, I don't agree that that's what the millennium is going to be like. I. Personally, I don't believe that there will be animal sacrifice continued in the millennium. Okay. I know many dispensationalists mm-hmm. do. They believe that there will be a uh, rebuilt temple with um, animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right now, I kind of tend, and this is one of the, prob- the problem deals too, is the um, Ezekiel's prophecies of the, the rebuilt temple seems to have more in common with new creation language that's used at the end of Revelation. Um, I should have made a sheet to to talk about those. I'm sure you're familiar with some of it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's still part to be worked out, but that would be a difference. I, I can't see a reinstituted animal sacrif- sacrifices mm-hmm. for what purpose. Some would say they're ed- for educational purposes. I, I don't know, but yeah. They would also probably have more of a big distinction between classic dispensationalists would have that distinction between the nations and Israel. I think would continue into the millennium, mm-hmm. and I just I don't have that distinction yeah. being made. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, I think that would be it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, uh, I think one yeah. that's good for us to talk about, though, is uh, the view of the king, our view of the kingdom of God, uh-huh. where they would might only see it really coming when Christ returns. Mm-hmm. We hold to what's called an already, but not yet. Yeah, it's not just a distinction of historic premillennialism; it's more of a distinction of reformed <laughs> yeah, theology. I think. Right. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. W- wasn't it George Eldon Ladd that kind of articulated He's, he coined that, that phrase? That, yeah. Um, my so I was wondering where does he put the millennium in that? So. I'm assuming that you would agree with the overlap of the ages mm-hmm. table that I showed last week. Is right. That... Yeah. Okay. Where Where does he put the millennium in the already not yet? So I, I think that might come from the presence of the future book that he wrote. It's kind of his book about the kingdom. Um, so his kind of his thesis is that here's the, ki- the uh, here's the chart. You can throw that up on the screen if you want to. Yeah. So the the already not yet it's not uh-huh. it's not one here but right. this age would be already uh-huh. so already um, new creation uh-huh. has broken in in the resurrection of Christ and the right. conversion of the saints those yep. who are in Christ are new creation right but not yet the age to come the the consummation hasn't hasn't arrived so yes. we're we're new creatures now uh-huh. but we're not glorified yet so right. already not yet yeah, yeah yeah I think that he that would fall right in line. A lot of that, this, I think, comes from probably his I imagine work so. On that's, that's, that's what I thought. So, so where, where does he put the millennium in that? The millennium would be like the consummation of his of his reign. So Okay, so, it, so it would be the... He has more of like age... Well, there is age to age to come, but his is more about the kingdom of God. Okay. And the kingdom of heaven mm-hmm. he are interchangeably used, right? right. Uh-huh. But you can't have a kingdom without the presence of the king. So 
um, when uh, Jesus casts out demon in, is it Mark 3 and Matthew 12, kind of the, the terminology that is used, they say, oh, you do miracles, mm-hmm. or right. you've done this by the work of Satan. He right. says, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Mm-hmm. But then he makes the statement, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm-hmm. He also makes statements to unbelievers that the kingdom of God is very near to you. Mm. Um, to um, to Nicodemus in John chapter three, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Mm-hmm. And so the argument that is made is that you can't have a kingdom without a king. And so when Christ comes, the kingdom is present mm-hmm. in his ministry in his preaching, and in his teaching, because the actual king is present, but people can't see it. Mm-hmm. And that's w- and that's why he's make- he makes these statements about entering the kingdom, seeing the kingdom, the kingdom has come upon you. The kingdom is very near to you, he'll say to someone who's close to believing. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so we can see that clearly, but then, so what happens when he, the death, burial, and resurrection takes place is that uh, the kingdom of God... I believe, now he may describe it a little differently and others might too, but the kingdom of God continues in the church in this present age. So where the gospel is preached, mm-hmm. where a church is, where a biblical New Testament church exists, you have an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And and uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, right. he's reigning there. Right. Um, and that then, when the king returns, the kingdom is... Launched into full, uh, full effect, full force. Um, the with the presence of because you can't have a kingdom without the presence of a king, and it's an earthly kingdom with uh, very it's very Garden of Eden like. The earth will be restored to uh, its former its former glory um, as the earth is waiting right now and groaning. Uh, for the revealing of the sons of glory, right as the resurrection takes place, Christ returns. There are differences. Some some historic premillennialists believe the earth will actually be at that time burned up, and that will be the beginning of new creation. So it's like it will begin, and we'll cultivate it and shape it and do all the things that we are supposed to do as humans mm. become a paradise that that's the beginning of new creation, like the new heaven and the new earth, but that doesn't actually come till after Satan is completely destroyed. Others aren't don't hold that position. Mm-hmm. I haven't taken a stance on that spot yet, um, but the presence of the king comes, kingdom begins. Mm-hmm. So what is the not yet will be present. Okay. You know, see what I mean? So we're in the already but not yet. At that time, then the not yet will be present. Okay. So there's um, there's another distinction um, that the kingdom is uh, inaugurated in some sense is already but is not yet it waits for a further consummation mm-hmm. of that um, the secret rapture we already talked about we don't believe in a secret rapture um, where we keep butting up against questions that I want to ask but I'm, okay. I'm kind of letting you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pick what you want to talk about first, I, because I've got some questions that I—they're just—they're just burning me up. Okay, I want to ask them. before you ask them. Before you ask them, <laughs> let me give you. Let me let me run through what I made was um, 
why do I hold to this uh, position? Okay. I have three reasons. Okay. Well, I, I can't give you four, but like, number one, I think it's most biblical. Uh, right? <laughs> but why do I think this is the biblical position, most okay. biblical? Okay. okay. And I'll go in maybe order of least importance to most. Okay. Uh, number one, the early church believed it. Okay, this... Most people aren't familiar with historic premillennialism, and they don't even know who has held it historically, or even who has held it in more recent history. Right, so here are, I'll start with a few people. So Polycarp. Polycarp is Bishop of Smyrna. He's a disciple of John. This is John's disciple. Now, does this seal the deal? No, but it's a very strong argument. Right, so if you, and there are two people who knew John. We've got Polycarp and uh, Papias, or Papias, know how to say his name. Um, they both knew John. They're both historic primo, or they're, they're millenarians. So Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, I have, I have, a, quote, I have a quote from him, and you can kind of see how it's not explicitly spelled out, and we don't have a lot of his writings anyway, but this, this is what he says in, uh, in his letter to the Philippians. If, if we please him in this present world, we shall receive also the future world, according as he has promised to us that, we will, that he will raise us again from the dead, and that if we live worthy of him, we shall also reign together with him. So, resurrection of the dead, and then reigning with Christ in a new world. Um, it's not super clear, so we could even say, I could even see how some amillennials would try to claim that. Like, he's talking about a new creation. But when you understand that his disciple, Polycarp's disciple, was Irenaeus, who was a bishop of Lyon in France, so we're... Polycarp knows John, the guy who wrote Revelation. He holds a position. Then the disciple of Polycarp, I have... He wrote a lot more uh, and against heresies. Let me see if I could find one that's pretty good. I think this one might, might be good. Okay, he says, Thus then, the promise of God, which he gave to Abraham, remained steadfast. Thus he did await patiently the promise of God, and was unwilling to appear to receive from men what God had promised to give him. When he said again to him as follows, I will give this land to thy seed, from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. If then God promised him the inheritance of the land, yet he did not receive it during that time of his sojourn there, it must be that together with his seed, that that is, those who fear God and believe in him, he shall receive it at the resurrection of the just. Okay, so that might, at first reading, seem to be, could go either way. But the comment at the end, the resurrection of the just, is telling, because he believes in two resurrections. Right? He believes there's a resurrection of the just, and then there is a millennial period, and then there is a, a resurrection of the dead. So at the resurrection of the just promises are fulfilled, and I've got a whole bunch of other ones from him. Papias, disciple of John. Um, the only stuff that we have from him, he's a bishop of Heropolis. I guess, apparently all his writings are lost, so you only have what like his friends wrote about him, or people that knew him wrote about him. And so, um, or you have writings of people who disagree with him, who think he's wrong, would write about him. So in the early Early 4th century, Eusebius of Caesarea, he confirms uh, Papias' uh, premillennialism. 
writing, I believe, against it. Yeah, Eusebius was... Yeah. He says, he says that, uh, so this is a description of his belief, the same person, moreover, has set down other things as coming to him from unwritten tradition, so teachings from John that he didn't write down. Among these are some strange parables and instructions of the Savior, and some of these things are more fa- of a more fabulous nature. Among these, he says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead, when the personal reign of Christ will be established on the earth. So <clears throat> he establishes that. So again, this isn't like the a done deal, but it's pretty strong evidence. Like if the disciples of John in the early church believed in a millennial reign of Christ on the earth, it's pretty weighty. It's more weighty, I think, than, than uh, some people would give credit to it. The Didache, also, uh, though that's debated on when that was written, some would say first century, some second century, but if you read the section, uh, chapter 16, on watchfulness and waiting for the coming of the Lord, um, it seems to imply um, a millennium. Um, just some quick stuff through the Reformed tradition. So I didn't know this until I started looking into this. William Twiss. So some people say, you can't be a Reformed and be a premillennial. Right? That's kind of like a... Well, I think the reason they say that is because of dispensational premillennialism, right? It kind of gives the name premillennialism. It kind of has a bad taste in people's mouth. Mm-hmm. So William Twiss, who's the president of the Westminster Confession, he oversaw the production of the Westminster Confession, was... Uh, Historic premillennialist. I was surprised by that. Some other names might seem, or you might might recognize: Robert Murray McShane, Thomas Goodwin, John Bunyan, John uh, J.C. Ryle, Benjamin Keach, John Gill. And I was surprised by this. I didn't know this. John and Charles Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, and then more modern times: Gordon Clark, George Eldon Ladd, Francis Schaeffer. I didn't know this. Al Mohler. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Al Mohler. John Piper, Brian Chapel, who wrote um, Christ-Centered Preaching, mm-hmm. and D.A. Carson. Um, so it's not—it's the minority position today, I think, in Reformed theology, but that doesn't mean there's not a tradition of Reformed people believing it. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, so there's that. That's that's one good reason. Um, so the early, the early church— not everyone in the early church. There, there were uh, other, other positions, but it was. It appears to be the ma- majority position in the early church. Um, this one you will like, I think. My second reason is that covenant theology requires it. Oh, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I'll try to. Ex- we'll try to explain it. So, um, usually in covenant theology. It begins in the garden with, what do they call it? Covenant of works, mm-hmm. right? God's covenant with Adam was a covenant of works. Um, Adam failed. And so then we have the covenants of grace unfolding, right? That's how it's usually explained. But in that, there are many sub-covenants which advance God's plan. Um, so you have God's covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the New Covenant. Uh, underarching the covenant of grace. Now, within those covenants 
all of God's covenants, there are unconditional elements of those covenants. Some of them are conditioned, such as the covenant of works or God's covenant with Moses. There are conditions placed upon them. But there are other parts of God's covenants which are completely unconditional, have nothing to do with the human at all, right? Whether they're obedient or they fail. Noah, the Noah, God's covenant with Noah, obviously, he's never going to flood the earth again, right? It has nothing to do with how terrible we get. He's not going to do it. Um, I believe in the Abrahamic covenant, his promise that through his uh, seed, through his offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That's unconditional. So Abraham fails, and he is uh, a sinner, and this doesn't abrogate God's promises and his covenants to him. There's a Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Um, David was chosen from all of the other Israelites, and then he's the youngest brother. Um, unmerited favor. And then when God makes this covenant with him, he promises that one of his descendants will sit on his throne forever. That's not conditional. That's unconditional, a promise. So we come back now to uh, the Garden of Eden. Go back to the very beginning. Some have called this um, an Edenic covenant. right? So usually, though, when people go back there, they think first of the covenant of works of Genesis 2, 15 through 17. But the argument is that prior to this, there's another covenant, which is a covenant of promise, which is unconditional. So the covenant of works, as we know... Uh, Genesis two fifteen through seventeen says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it you shall die." And every covenant theologian affirms Adam failed in the covenant. He broke God's covenant, and so he got the covenant curses. They fell upon him and all of his descendants after him, and upon the earth. But prior to that is what some in historic pre-male see is a, um, an unconditional covenant given in Genesis 1, 26-28. And this covenant begins with creation of the man and the woman. Uh, then God said, again, so this is a different angle in the creation account, but this is different information than we get in Genesis 2. God said, let us make man our image and our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this initial covenant of promise or blessing and God blessed them, is that God granted them authority over the earth, and he, and, he, and he gave them dominion. This is a king language, right? Adam is a king of the earth, and as God promised Abraham, um, I think an unconditional land grant was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2-3, which is ultimately fulfilled when Christ returns, um, this is a land grant of creation given to mankind, to man, to Adam, to the man, Adam, who was supposed to be God's viceroy. So Adam is created in God's image and likeness as a king. So God desires a king on this created order, on this earth, to rule and to reign and reflect his glory. He failed, but it doesn't appear, I don't think at all, that God took that back from him. Um, 
that still remains in effect. This earth belongs to men, to mankind, but what God desires has never been fulfilled because Adam failed. Um, but it's un- unconditional, given by pure grace, bestowed upon him. But God never rescinds it. So there comes the promise in Genesis 3, the promise which we know is the first gospel, is that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, thus undoing all the work of Satan. Now we usually will, in the Reformed world, only apply that to the spiritual realm, as in regeneration. But um, when Christ appears, we're told in 1 John 3, 8-9, through that the reason he appeared is to destroy the works of the devil. Well, part of the work of the devil what he that he did was um, the earth was cursed. Mankind has failed to take dominion of the earth. The earth is never. We have never taken dominion of this earth. You know, um, there are plenty of resources here. There are. There's plenty of space here. We haven't even come close to populating the earth fully um, and making the most of what God has intended for us to be. And the reason is, is because we've fallen in sin and we can't. But that doesn't mean that God's original plan disappears, and God has given up on this world. So what Adam lost must be recaptured by Christ, who is called the last Adam. And I think it's important that he's called the last Adam. It's not just that he's our federal head, it's that he is literally going to be the king of the earth and take dominion in every capacity that Adam failed. I believe Christ will return to the physical earth not to reign, he's not reigning spiritually, but he will reign physically as God's viceroy. Um, where Adam failed, Christ will succeed in the millennial reign, and we will expand, subdue, take dominion of the earth, and those who are united with Christ will actually reign with him and participate in that, that dominion over the earth. There's the, there's that aspect of it. Um, there is also the aspect of the Davidic covenant, I believe, requires it. So there, there may be some debate over the Abrahamic covenant. It seems to me that I think God's promises um, that they will have the land from the river Euphrates to the uh, river um, uh, to the river of Egypt was fulfilled, possibly in Solomon's reign. Don't know for sure, so uh, we don't need to spend a lot of time there. But the Davidic covenant, I believe, requires this. Um, God, God made his promises to, to David, and some of them will, were fulfilled, okay? but not all of them. So in the Davidic covenant, there's historic fulfillment in that David's name becomes great. So 2 Samuel 7, God will give him a great name. His, David's name is great. He gave him a great name. Israel was given a place to dwell. Solomon, his son, builds the temple. Solomon, his son, was punished for, for his sin. Um, they're given peace from all of their enemies, uh, but there, there are other elements upon, uh, that are not fulfilled. So David's throne is, I don't believe, the throne where we would say Christ is reigning right now. Okay? I do believe Christ is reigning right now at the right hand of the Father, but I don't believe that's David's throne. I believe David's throne is a human throne, and it was God's intent uh, that in the millennial reign, you could almost call it Adam's throne. So um, Christ will do what Adam failed to do 
on a literal throne on the earth. That's David's throne. Um, there, there is some, I think, some textual reasons to believe this. In Revelation three twenty through twenty two, uh, Jesus Himself seems to differentiate between um, His uh, Father's throne and His throne. What this is the famous passage: "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him." And he with me, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down on my father, with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, then, where do we sit with Christ and reign with him? I think Revelation 5 tells us that. So, Revelation 5 says they sang a new song worthy to take the scroll to open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, so I don't take that as a spiritual reign. I take that as Christ reigning on his Davidic throne, and those who persevere and even are martyred for their faith in the this terrible time of suffering that Christians have experienced all the way from Christ's resurrection till now, and which will continue even in the future, uh, will reign with him on the earth. Um, when does he take that throne? That's the question. And I think Matthew 19, 20 through, uh, 28 through 30, Jesus says, and I think he, he tells us, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father for, or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Um, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So when, he, uh, when the Son of Man returns in the new world, he will sit on David's throne, we will reign with him on the earth, and that's when he takes it. So, where's he reigning now? Well, he's reigning from where he reigned before he ever came to the earth, right? Uh, Jesus has, he had all authority before he ever came to this earth. He sat with his Father there on their throne. Uh, you call this the Trinitarian throne. I don't, I don't know which name you want to call it. He's humiliated, humbled, but through the, because of the cross, the resurrection, and his obedience, God honors him with a name above every name. He's returned to the place of glory. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. But he's coming to reign on David's throne, which I believe is Adam's throne. Um, <clears throat> this rule will be over the entire world. Isaiah 2 through 2, 2 through 4, I think implies this strongly. Uh, it shall come to pass that in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord of Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples." and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this, uh, this world, worldwide rule of Christ will um, 
help humanity to fulfill what we were designed for. Um, I, we can't even imagine how great this will be. The things that we'll, we will create, the things that we will build, the art that will be made, um, there's literally no way for us to even fathom what we will be capable of doing in, this, in, the, in the millennial kingdom with Christ as our king. And sin being removed, because um, I don't believe there are non-believers there. Okay. I take probably a strange position on that. That raises a question that I've got here. Okay. All right, all right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So you've got that question. Well, I've got I, I've got I have one, I've got several questions. But okay, I'll, we still have to talk about Revelation nineteen or twenty. But uh-huh. we can take a break and and we can ask that. Uh-huh. You can ask that question. Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, we can start there. Revelation nineteen and twenty. Okay. Um. Revelation 19, Christ's second coming. Uh-huh. Right? Um, okay, so you said you had six six reasons why 19 right. and 20 should be yeah, yeah. chronological. Yeah, I took, to... I took these from Shriner, okay. and really in in one of them... Well, you took it from Shriner yesterday, but today he's got a different... Yeah, he changed his position. position. He's changed his position again. He went back to All Mill, then back to Historic Pre-Mill again. Did and you then, find what he's called And then now he's... I don't know what I don't he's called. I don't remember what it's called. I can't find it. I can't... I... I I guess we'll just have to wait till October when his when his revelation commentary yeah. comes I mean, out. I don't remember what's called. That's this is a pretty humbling thing to think about, right? So mm-hmm. he is an expert in Greek. Yeah. We aren't. Right. And he's changed his position several times. Uh-huh. Really, I think between historic pre mill and all mill. I don't know that he's ever dabbled in post mill. Not that I know of. Unless that's his new one. Surprise. No, it's I wish I I wish I knew what it was called. I I Googled it and I can't like Shriner Millennial position, yeah. and uh, it keeps popping up a uh, Amil and and historic Primil. Right, I, I can't find his new position. It's, I th- I think from what I've read, it's a it's a new position. Yeah, like not just the Shriner. It's a new position in the history that, of the that church. Has, that's come up. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> which is <laughs> a red flag. Which gives me gives me pause. But right, I can't, right. I cannot remember what it's called. I'll have to keep looking and see if I can. I can find what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I had something saved a long time ago, and I I can't find it now. Yeah, yeah, it's, I I can't remember what it's called. As well, I'll have to buy the but commentary. He's, but now. he's a new. I have to start saving. It's an expensive commentary. It is. That's an expensive commentary. Like How much? Sixty-eight bucks yeah. pre-order. That's a. They have to. The worst. The worst is when these small books go like out of print and they're mm-hmm. out of print for about like 30 years and you really want to buy it. Right. You go to Amazon thinking you're going to spend 10 bucks and it's like $120. <laughs> right. Like, I got to buy that book yeah. for $120. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, yesterday, this was Shriner's position. <laughs> so give All right. Us, so give us one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So give us, uh, so you've got six, six, yeah, yeah. six reasons that Shriner gave for why 19 and 20 should be read chronologically. Yeah, then I've got three others that are, that are kind of underneath the first one. So oh, okay. the first one is that Revelation 19 flows into 20. There's not a division. Uh, there's no reason to think there's a recapitulation that begins in 20, which is, I think, what, where all mill and post mill fall. There, there is a sequence. Now, this is not to say that I, I disagree with recapitulation, because I can see the strength of that, but though I would hold more to a futurist which I think you hold more to a futures too. You're not. You don't really read Revelation preterist like, right? There might be some elements there that I, I could see it, but for the most part, it'd probably be more futuristic. 
So I was trying to go last night. I was actually looking. I was like, if they would just not break the recapitulation like point here and start it again in 20 and just let it flow out of 17, like you could have all the recapitulation <laughs> and it fits with Stuart Premill. That's but what Hamilton does. Hamilton does that? Yeah, that's what okay. Hamilton does. Well, I'd like to read read a, if he's got a book on it or he's got something. A commentary, yeah. It is. So um, it seems that the best way to interpret this is that 19 flows right into 20. Um, there's a sequence, Jesus returns, the beast, the false prophet, are destroyed. So let me get this straight. Your first reason why it follows chronologically is that it follows chronologically? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I just yeah. want to make sure. I just want to make sure I'm hearing you yeah. right. <laughs> so there, there is, and the other view, though, you would only have two members of this unholy trinity, uh-huh. right? They are uh, destroyed. But then it starts over. And Satan is bound. And so now we're back to like the resurrection of Christ starting over in 20. But I don't think that, I think it just flows right in. It's telling the same story. Satan is bound and thrown into the bottomless pit. The millennial reign of Christ begins. Now, there are three reasons, I think, to see it as a sequence, not a recapitulation. I don't think that there is a cue that a new a new vision has begun, right? I think you see those cues in um, that the visions begin in 1, 4, 17, and 21 but they're not there in 20. Um, there's not a narrative change. So some places in Revelation, it's pretty clear that all of a sudden we get like a pause, and then there's a narrative change, right? Like I'll give you a behind the scenes of the, you know, the harlot and, and this stuff. That None of that happens here. And there's, there's, uh, there's no change in like the language. In fact, the language supports it, because there's the phrase, then I saw, which goes all the way through 19 and 20. Then I saw, then I saw, then we come to 20, then I saw, and then there's another than I saw. So to say it's a, I think a recapitulation that it doesn't, it, it kind of abruptly just interferes with that flow of then I saw. So there's the first. The second is that uh, in Revelation 12, Satan is uh, thrown down, um, but he's still active on the earth. At 20, 20, he is thrown into a bottomless pit with a chain around him. Right. So in 12, he's cast down, he's thrown down, which sometimes all mills see that as you know referencing what Jesus said, and they tie that to the binding of Satan. Um, but it seems to be different in Revelation 12 and 20. He's inactive uh, because he's thrown into a pit, and he can't get out. A third, Satan is still deceiving people today. I think it is uh, very clear that all of the nations are completely deceived. Um, false religions, I think our nation is incredibly deceived. I mean, we, uh, I think the transgender, transgender movement is a great deception of Satan. Um, I, don't buy, I don't buy into the idea that um, it means that he can't deceive the nations as far as stopping the spread of the gospel, because I don't think he ever could stop the spread of the gospel. In fact, I think when Jesus speaks of initially of the the binding of the strong man and the plundering of his house, um, he's speaking on an individual basis. And I think when the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit moves to regenerate someone, the bind the, the strong man is bound and his house is plundered by the Holy Spirit. I think that fits more in line with what Jesus is speaking of there. Um, Satan still deceives people today. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So I don't, that just doesn't seem very bound to me. 
um, if he's still deceiving non-believers and keeping them from seeing the, the truth of the gospel, um, though I, with a caveat that when the gospel is preached, God binds him and overcomes um, people's unbelief. But they're still incredibly deceived, right? So people are incredibly deceived away from the gospel. Fourth, uh, the verb came to life, found in Revelation 20, verse 4, um, is the same one that is used of Jesus in 2.8, and it means to come to life in a physical body. Um, so I don't like the idea of making that about a, a spiritual resurrection or to regeneration, um, because it means to come to physical life in a physical body. It's used of Jesus, um, and, I, and, I, and I could see how people could say that uh could fall into heresy and say that Christ was resurrected in a spiritual spiritually right then it says that the rest of the dead came to life when the thousand years was over and i think everybody agrees that that means physical life um and so i just think it applies as well in the first time it's mentioned in, in 4 um in this passage, um, if this passage isn't talking about physical resurrection of believers, then it's not ever talked about at all, right? Um, so if it's if it's in in two four, if that's speaking of spiritual resurrection, then there's not a place in Revelation where the physical bodily resurrection of believers is even mentioned. That I think is a problem. Um, sixth, the word for resurrection, as you know, anastasis always refers to a physical resurrection. Um, even N.T. Wright, in his, his book that he wrote on the resurrection, makes that case. And then he gives a caveat, except for in Revelation 20. <laughs> and so I, I don't see how... how it, I think what's happened is his he, more of his eschatology has influenced his interpretation in that sense. So I think anastasis always refers to re, a physical resurrection, um, I guess I could go there, and we could talk about that uh, more if there are questions. Um, so there's a first resurrection. This is, we came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. After the millennium ends, Satan is unbound, deceives the nations, resurrection of the dead, unrighteous takes place, and then the final judgment. I think that is the clearest, plainest reading of these of these chapters. Um, and and in that period between the first resurrection, the second is Christ's millennial reign. So there you go. Okay. All right. Well, let's ask some questions, shall we? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So Revelation 19, Jesus returns, Christ's second coming. <laughs> uh-huh. Seems like he kills everybody. Right. Right. Um, who goes into the millennium? So there are two positions on this. I'll give the one that I don't hold to first, but which is plausible, I guess. Um, so when Christ returns, uh, let me go back in my notes, because I think I have the verse. When Christ returns, the unbelieving Jews will see him and convert. So uh, Zechariah uh, 12.10 through 13, one says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on him 
whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, the wives and the, by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Levi, and their wives by themselves, the family of Shemites by themselves, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Um, this, I think, is tied to uh, Romans eleven twenty five through 27. Now, so what some would say is those, so we come back in our glorified bodies, mm-hmm. they look up, they're unregenerate, but the vision of Christ, they, and because God is gracious to them and merciful to them, he removes their sin and their iniquity, their blindness from their eyes, and they mourn real repentance, and there is a mass conversion. Okay, they then do not receive glorified bodies. They have children, um, and they and as as the millennial reign goes on, uh, they're having children. Their children are having children, and they are all not converting, right? So, at the end, when Satan's released from the bottomless pit, goes out to deceive the four corners of the earth, the nations. This is the Gog and Magog army. This will be composed of unbelieving, their unbelieving children. Um. It's it's plausible because it could be that this is a final definitive indictment upon the human heart and the human condition, um, that in this place, this uh, place which is paradise-like with the presence of Christ here, and Satan is not even here to tempt them, that they'll many will not believe on Christ. And so when Satan returns, they'll choose sides, and they don't choose Christ. So so I'm clarifying question. Right. <laughs> These would be all Jewish people? Right. Okay. Now, I'm, now I, I didn't say that's not my yeah, yeah. position. Well, I was, well I, I was just wondering because, you know, you look at Ezekiel... 39, 38 and 39, right. and the Gog and Magog passage, and it seems like these it's are composed Gentiles, of nations. like these are Gentiles coming against... Yeah, the other, so the other one would be that uh, when Christ returns and destroys what appears to be everyone, mm-hmm. which I agree is everyone, uh, that that only happens locally, mm-hmm. like in the Middle East, mm-hmm. there's a massive army, com- total decimation, mm-hmm. blood up to the top of a horse, you know, all of that, like it's literal. But there are people all throughout the earth that that doesn't happen to. Um, so they enter the millennium as unregenerate. Okay. Um, again, we're not told these things. I take a position which probably is a little, uh, it's in the minority, but it's not mine, it's John Gill's. Okay, so I'll read you what John Gill says. I think it's. I think it actually works. Um John Gill, he asks in his commentary on Revelation, um, he says on this passage, but the great question is, who are meant by these? <laughs> the Gog and Magog army. Uh-huh. And he goes to this whole list of who it can't be. Okay. Okay. Like it's long. I'm like, bro. Like, and it's like one <laughs> run on sentence, a comma, comma, comma. Oh, yeah. Like, dude, like take a, take a breather. Yeah. 
But then he gets finally, he gets to where he reveals it. He said, but these will be all the wicked dead, the rest of the dead who live not again until the thousand years were ended. When will be the second resurrection? The resurrection of all the wicked that have been from the beginning of the world, and these with the posse of devils under Satan will make up the Gog and Magog army. All the, char- all the characters agree with them. These may be called nations or Gentiles, being aliens from the true Israel of God, the dogs that will be without the holy city. These may be said to be in the four corners of the world, since where they die and are buried, there they will rise and will stand upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And as they die enemies of Christ and his people, they will rise as such. So he has these people at the end of time when Satan is loose and unbound, he has the resur- the resurrection of the dead taking place. Mm-hmm. The resurrection of the dead, um, they still hate Christ and they hate God. It's almost like, you know, where C.S. Lewis, he said that um, hell is locked from the inside, mm-hmm. whereas if people could get out of hell, they wouldn't want to because they hate God. Mm-hmm. They hate him so much that rather than escape the torment, they would stay there in their hatred of God. Um, and so they rise from the dead, and in, they're enemies of God, they rise enemies in their hatred. Satan amasses them as a final army to try to fight against Christ, and he destroys them. Okay, so let me let me see if I, I understand your position. Mm. Okay, so Christ comes. Yep. He kills all the unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the dead in Christ rise yep. and are glorified. The saints that are alive are glorified. Mm-hmm. So on the earth, Christ and the glorified saints. No one else. No one else. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... Jew and, Jew and Gentile. Uh-huh. Okay. So no no unbelievers. No unbelievers. Only, only glorified mm-hmm. believers. Right. Okay. And it could be a thousand years, could be 10,000 years. Don't okay. know. Then at the end of it, Satan is released uh-huh. and there's a resurrected right unbelieving army army so okay. yeah whereas usually in i think in the pre-mill position you would people would say well at this at this uh, second resurrection it's just immediately resurrection to judgment the great white throne judgment mm-hmm. this would just back it up a little bit further and say they're resurrected to compose the gog and magog army okay okay yep let me ask you another question because we've had this conversation before. Okay. You you've talked about how during the millennium Christ is ruling over the nations with uh-huh. a rod of iron and you uh-huh. you've you've emphasized that Christ is reigning with a rod of iron. Right. If if it's just him and glorified saints, what is that? What's that mean? Um I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I've I mean, mo- it's, I mean it's fair as enough. I said, I've, I've I've modified my position a little bit okay. because I think Gills is convincing and makes the best sense of it. Okay. Um, it could be that uh, I'm wrong, okay. and the destruction which happens at the Battle of Armageddon there um, at his at his uh, when he returns on a white horse making war against the nations that there are people that are left mm-hmm. alive. And yeah. they repopulate the earth, and he rules with he rules with a rod of iron. Mm, okay. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, I mean that that's one of the biggest difficulties for me is, right. is um, you've got glorified saints, mm-hmm. and you've got people left. Even though it sounds it sounds like 
Jesus kills everybody. Right. Um, in Revelation 19. Right. It, it seems to be kind of universal language. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was one of the big. So right. if I so if I was to become pre mill, I probably have to take Gills. Yeah. Um, do you see a do you see a so you, you read 19 and 20, there's no break, and it's it's chronological. But it seems like there's no break, and it's chronological with the un, unbinding of Satan, the destruction mm-hmm. of Gog and Magog, and then the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I, I mean, are you still working through yeah, that? Yeah, I am. Okay. Yeah, you still have, whichever other, ever way you go, there are issues. Okay. I think there are in, in every single eschatology. Okay. Otherwise, we could all pick the one. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. We could all pick the one that doesn't have any. That's right. Yeah. Well, that that position, your your position, kind of deals with a lot of the questions that I had because I was going to ask, what happens to believers who die during the millennium? Right. Like, are people so? So there's there's other there's other his, there's other positions right. in the historic. Yeah, there are others position. who wouldn't take that position. So so. So moving away from your position a little bit and uh-huh. thinking about the others, would they see people still converting during the millennium? Or is it just glorified saints yeah. and I, I unbelievers? Don't know. I don't think I don't anything anybody writes about it would be pure speculation. Okay. You know what I mean? Well, I mean you've got I mean you you put an emphasis on these these old testament passages right. that seem to be talking about uh, a millennium kingdom, and one of those that I know people struggle with is the people who um, they live to be, you know, over a right. hundred years old, yes. and those who don't reach a hundred are considered accursed. And yes, it would seem yeah. like there's it's the end of uh, believe, it's Isaiah sixty five. Um, so I, I was just wondering if they if they see people still being converted, <clears throat> and what happens to the so, people who are converted? Do they do they have to wait until? The re- the, do they the have final to wait resurrection to be glor like what, yeah, do they like have what happens till they die, to them? Do they, they die and then they they instantly come back glorified like those you see right kind of the, the I questions. do I do yeah okay. yeah I don't, still working through them yeah okay I don't I don't <laughs> think there I don't think there's great answers to those <laughs> okay. okay I haven't been satisfied even with the answers I've read that yeah. would say this is uh you know as Isaiah's writing he can't imagine a state where nobody ever actually dies and mm-hmm. so he writes as if uh, you'll die, mm. you know, exceedingly old age. Mm. Someone who dies a hundred would be accursed. Um, I don't. It's not super convincing. Okay. Yeah, because that's the position, right? That it stands for the new creation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I was just wondering because you know, are there are there um, like is there popcorn resurrections throughout the millennium kingdom as as saints are dying and then they're coming back? At, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No one, no okay. one knows. Okay. Um, yeah. Trying to working <laughs> stuff off because right. that's not his position. That's not his. Yeah, position. yeah. Mine's pretty simple, right? Nobody <laughs> dies in the millennium. Right. <laughs> There's no non-believers in the millennium. Right. Nobody dies. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. I guess um, not mine. I mean, you got John Gill to thank for it. Not mine. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. Uh, you gotta mark all your questions off. I was like, all right, this is this is a boring interview. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Ezekiel's third temple is my biggest issue. I tell you, like, okay, that's is that the what did you say? That's the 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 biggest. I think that's the biggest the biggest biggest issue. issue. Okay. Um, So yeah, and I I don't. I mean, 
you can't completely spiritualize the whole thing, I don't think. Um, but yeah, I just I haven't. I'm still working through that, as yeah. I think most people probably are. Um, so there's there's no sin in the millennium. There's no death. There's no sickness. People right. Aren't converted. There's yeah. not glorified and unglorified Christians. It's okay. So it's it's almost as if it is the new heaven and the earth. Yeah. So that was my that was that that question is actually here. Right. You, you, so as you were talking, as you were walking through it, you kept saying this is the new world in the yeah. new world. Uh huh. So what is what distinguishes the millennium and and the new heavens and new earth? Is there uh-huh. a distinction, or is it just just flow right into it? What what's the what is the distinction? And, Kind of you, you kind of hit on that. Maybe hit on it again. What's the purpose of the millennium if there's no, if there's no unbelievers? Like, what distinguishes the millennial kingdom and the so the purpose the con- of the millen- and, and the actual consummated? Right. Yeah, yeah. The purpose of the state. millennium is to uh, for God to fulfill His promises. Mm-hmm. God, God, I, and again, you go back to Adam. I believe that God must fulfill His promises in this created order. Okay, all so of what? Them. So what? So I would, I would. Agree that God mm. fulfills all of His promises in Christ on a physical earth. Mm. Um, what's the distinction between your position and mine? Like, because your millennial kingdom and my eternal state, uh-huh. they they're they're, they're identical. Similar. Yeah, I think the <laughs> they're identical. So what? So what's the so what's the distinction between the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and new earth? I think the the, the distinction is is that in this in this created order. Not in the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, uh, Christ wins. Like he wins. If, and I'm not taking a jab or knocking like, you know, the all mill position, but in that position, um, Christ wins and reigns spiritually, right? And in that sense, it is as if like the entire created order has been given over and given up. But in this one, what he promised. And what he created um, is ful- all fulfilled in Christ. Satan loses in this created order. Christ takes dominion over this earth. Um, and yes, we will go into a new heavens and a new earth, but it's to fulfill his promises. It's, to, I think, to fulfill that, um, that covenant of blessing that we see in Eden to do everything that Adam failed to do. And to fulfill his promises to uh, David, that a descendant would reign on his throne on a physical, like a physical throne on the earth. Um, and I don't know how long that goes on. Um, it will be very new creation like. Um, yeah, it's very close. Yeah, you know, what I'm saying it's it's like it's almost like it's um, a preparation. For humanity to move into the eternal state, uh, but it's also a chance for us to be rewarded. I think that's an important element. Um, you remember what he says to Peter: um, "Haven't we given up all this?" And he says, "You'll be rewarded." You know, I can't remember how many fold. Um, we suffered here, but we'll reign here, and our rewards will be here. And I think this is important too. While we, that we uh, we understand that. Uh, our rewards in this system will be um, in the same place where we suffered and were persecuted. We'll be the victors here, and we'll be rewarded here. Um, you're gonna so, start. You're gonna start sounding that post mill in just a second. Jay. Well, I was gonna say everything you're, you're the post. Well, here's how I could summarize it. Everything <laughs> the post mill wants, 
this position has, yeah. except for Christ accomplishes it all. Mm. Like, literally, yeah. physically. Yeah. Um, you see what I mean? Yeah. Kind of what they want, yeah, they see right. the church pursuing it, mm. and I just don't see the church... I see the church victorious in the gospel, as mm. it takes the nation, takes the gospel to all the nations, but as far as, like, a, um, the culture changing, mm-hmm. I only see that coming with the king, mm. the return of the king. Yeah. So what's the what's the purpose? So if that's the purpose of the millennium, what's the purpose of Satan being unbound? Like why? If it, it seems like this is new creation light uh-huh. and it and it moves into new creation, what's the purpose of Satan being unbound? Because I I understand the um, you know this is the final this right. this is like the final indictment against humanity. Satan is bound and they're still rebelling. Right. Um, but if Satan is bound and there's no, no unbelievers, here. what's well, the purpose of Satan? Why why doesn't why doesn't Jesus just why why doesn't it just kind of move fluidly into this new world? One one possibility is this, again, pure pure speculation on my part. But there is a tendency, I think, for us to think as believers, well, if maybe if that non-believing friend that I had would have more revelation given to them, they could have converted. Mm-hmm. Or what happened to my lost person there in hell? If given a chance of a post-mortem encounter with Christ, wouldn't they convert? Yeah. And I think that this answers the question. The, the answer is no. Mm. After being in hell for the millennium and raised in physical bodies on a physical paradise, they're raised into a paradise. They have nothing but hatred for Christ. They won't. They won't go... Oh, I repent. Like hell's terrible. You're glorious. Look what you've done to the created order. Like you are the king. You're worthy to be praised. Mm. I think it's a, again, it could be another final indictment upon the sin of humanity. That even when shown that, instead of falling at his feet, they'll try to rebel again. Mm-hmm. Try to overthrow him. Yeah. My speculation, though. Mm. Um. So Ezekiel. 40 through 48, that's the, yeah. you'd say that's the most difficult right. passage for you. Yeah, and I'd probably be very all mill like in seeing that, that that is very, it's like new creation language, mm-hmm. and you see, you know, the the Jerusalem from above coming to the earth, mm-hmm. and there's all the, the measurements and all like that. Right. There's a lot of similarities okay. to the end of Revelation in, in those passages. Okay. But I haven't worked through that. Okay. So. All right. Uh, for the resources, uh, you said um, that they said there's not a whole lot. Uh, what yeah. would you What would you recommend? Uh, John Gill's commentaries. Okay, oh, uh, no, you're going to be recommending John Gill. Uh, he's a he's a beast to read. Yeah, like, yeah, he likes those run on sentences. <laughs> he does. <laughs> uh, there's John Gill's commentaries. Um, there's of course uh, anything by George Eldon Ladd, uh, the Blessed Hope. So if you're like a Maybe you're a rapture, secret rapture guy. Mm. He wrote a book called The Blessed Hope, which I think is pretty definitive, mm. showing that um, the Bible doesn't really land there mm-hmm. with uh, the most evidence. So that's The Blessed Hope. There's The Presence of the Future. That's another one that he wrote, and then he's got a, uh, a commentary on Revelation, and he's written several other. There's like The Gospel of the Kingdom, I can't remember. Um, there's A Case for Historic Premillennialism. It's a collection of essays. It's called An Alternative to Left Behind. Um, Craig L. Bloomberg published that. There's uh, Hamilton, uh, which I don't, I didn't buy his commentary. 
that you had mentioned, but doesn't he have a, is it a biblical theology, maybe, yeah, too? Yeah, God's, God's glory in salvation through judgment. Uh-huh. He'll, he'll have his revelation stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, he also, if you have the ESV study Bible, he did the, I believe he did the the study notes for Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, Spurgeon, you'll have to dig through all his sermons and find particular, you'd need like a search engine probably, mm-hmm. but you could... Uh, find all the sermons he did on the end times, and then you'd have to compile it to see his historic premillennialism emerge. Um, I think Moeller Moeller has something on it, but I couldn't find it. I was actually trying to find it before I came in here. Didn't he write a little something on the end times? Or maybe an essay in a book? I can't remember. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's... That's it. There's there's also good things you can you can gather from other people, right? Though uh, I wouldn't be a dispensationalist and wouldn't agree with um, <clears throat> uh, what is the guy's name? Um, he's the main guy at um, TMS. Vlock Michael Vlock has written a book on the kingdom. It has some of the g- chapters in there are very good actually, um, as far as why a necessity the necessity of an earthly reign of Christ. Um. So, uh, yeah, there, there's that type of stuff that's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to touch on? I don't think so. Okay. Did that answer most of your questions you've ever that had? Answer, well, I mean, your position is... Um, a three for a loop? It's be- I, well, I mean, I... I, I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, right. I, these are questions that, you know, um, you've, you've got Christ reigning. Uh-huh. Who's, who's here? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, and, believers and unbelievers. Well, one uh, thing I would say is, uh, as far as Christ reigning, I believe that there's a there's a place in that millennial reign for ethnic Jews. Mm-hmm. As far as what that looks like, as far because I think he's going to reign from a capital. Like think of him as the king of the earth. Well, the king has a capital. Well, I think that right? we see that even in Revelation twenty one, the kings of the earth are bringing their yes. glory into the New Jerusalem, and those are Gentiles like me and you. Yeah, and I, I think I, I agree with you that the ethnic diversity that's that's not sinful, right? Um, I would yeah. I would imagine because you know skin color, your pigmentation is based on like where you live, right? And I would imagine that if Adam had never fallen and they had Never dispersed, Pop- populated the earth. Oh, you, you're saying still, that there'd oh, still be there'd still be I see different skin colors, right? <laughs> because there'd still be different ethnicities because yeah. um, that's good. Yes, there's there's nothing there's nothing sinful and and wrong about right that. It's, yeah, it's I think it's good. Right. Yeah. I think I think you're right. Yeah. So okay, that's it. All right. Well, uh, good conversation. All right. Thanks for the interview. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully this was helpful for you as we are continuing our series on eschatology. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the dispensational premillennialism and the amillennialism um, and examine the scriptures. Examine the scriptures. Um, It doesn't matter what George and Jay say. (laughs) 
<laughs> it matters what the Bible says. And so we want to be students of the Word. So um, dig into your Bibles, and hopefully this has helped you a little bit. If it has, please make sure to like, subscribe, share. Um, next next Friday, we will be interviewing Corey Anderson on post-millennialism, so that should be a good conversation. Uh, no Text Driven Tuesday next week, um, so hopefully you have a good weekend, good Lord's Day, and we will see you next time.